0: Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online, or later on demand, or listening to our podcast, we've been praying that you would experience the life-changing power of God in your life today. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not in ours. We are regular people on a journey allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives. We're learning to live like Jesus a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. I'm Chris Voigt and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. People grow here because that team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. And even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, the Gospels testify to his prayer life. From the first moments we meet him in the Gospel of Luke, he is praying as he is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptizer. And for the next three-ish years, he made prayer a regular part of his routine. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness to pray. After healing Peter's mother-in-law and all of the sick in Capernaum, the gospel writer Mark tells us that Jesus got up early and went off to a solitary place to pray. And then after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sent the disciples ahead in a boat while he went up the mountain to pray. He didn't just pray alone, however... On the night that he was betrayed by Judas, after his final Passover supper, there in the room with the 11 disciples, John records a pastoral prayer in which Jesus prayed to be glorified personally, as well as for the well-being of his followers, those in the room and those who would follow later, which would include us. Now, I can imagine that as that evening turned into night, The weight of what was to come began to overwhelm not just his spirit, but also his body and his mind. So it should be no surprise that on their journey back from Jerusalem to Bethany, where they were staying, Jesus led them into the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. It was a place familiar to them. Jesus had often taken them there for private teaching and prayer. It's late by this point, maybe around 1 a.m., It's been a long night, a long week, really. Uh, Let's look at it from Matthew's perspective. If you want to follow along in your Bible or in a Bible app, we'll pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. Now at this point, there are 11 disciples with Jesus. Judas has already gone to do his thing. That leaves, so he leaves eight of them uh, near the entrance and invites Peter, James, and John to come further with him. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Scholars suggest that Peter, James, and John were invited to share in the intimacy of these next moments because they had also witnessed the glory of Christ at the transfiguration. Contrasted with this moment, almost the opposite of what Jesus, of Jesus in all of his glory, he gives them a glimpse of his soul in agony. And then verse 39. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering, the cup that Jesus is referring to here is uh, God's wrath. It symbolizes God's wrath. Let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. The word Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew phrase, Gat Shemanim." meaning oil press. Uh, Though scholars can only speculate on its exact location, the name suggests that the hill was likely surrounded by olive trees with a nearby olive press. Uh, An oil press was similar to a wine press and used to crush fruit, releasing its contents for other more profitable purposes. How fitting that Jesus, his spirit crushed, would decide to spend these moments in this location. Now, it's here that Jesus kneels down, face down in the dirt, as he releases the dread of what's to come into the hands of his father. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, If this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Now, it's hard with just these few lines of text to get a feel for how long Jesus prayed. After Jesus returns to Peter, James, and John the first time, he asks, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Now, if you assume that Jesus was referring to a literal hour, and it was an hour each time, you'd come up with three hours. Scholars suggest it was anywhere from a one to six hour window, which tells you that nobody really knows. Uh, There had to have been enough time for Peter, James, and John to hear the words of Jesus' prayer, otherwise we'd have no record of them, and then fall asleep. Most of us are familiar with this story. At at the very least, most churches come back to it every year for Good Friday and or Easter, but have you ever really thought about the words Jesus prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane? If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we are closing out... Uh, our four-week series on prayer that we've called Conversations with God. We've all experienced the frustration and disappointment of unanswered prayers. In fact, I guess that most of us have been praying about something really important for a long time, and we're still waiting for answers. It's a little confusing sometimes, isn't it? What God says yes to and what he says no to and how long it takes to get answers sometimes. It can even be confusing to figure out the answer when it does come. I don't know about you, but I'm great at hearing my own voice, but not so great sometimes at hearing his. I mean, sometimes his voice in my head sounds mysteriously like my own, which can get me into trouble. We have so many problems with prayer. I know it wouldn't be okay to say that in some churches, but this is Dayspring. We're aiming for transparency and honesty here. We have so many problems with prayer, which can stretch our faith to its breaking point sometimes. In fact, it has broken many people's faith. And while we're being honest and transparent, can we just address the elephant in the room? No one feels like they pray enough. No one. I've never met a person who said, I pray enough. I've only met people who wish they prayed more, which also carries a bit of guilt and shame with it. Now, we've explored some of these problems already. We've learned that we don't know, we don't really know what to pray for, which makes praying effectively just a little harder. However, the Holy Spirit has our back and he turns our nonsense prayers into something beautiful on our behalf. We've also explored what it looks like to have a continual conversation with God, to pray without ceasing, as the Apostle Paul would say. And we've learned that being devoted to prayer is more about deepening our friendship with Jesus in a two-way conversation than it is about downloading our to-do list for him to get to work on. And last week, we looked at some of the power God of God that is activated in and through us when we pray. Today, as we close the series, we're going to look at some things we can learn from Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane. And I'll unpack how I've applied those things in my prayer life. As I say that, I want to be very clear about something. The only wrong way to pray is to not pray. Don't ever let anyone try to convince you that their way is the right way. It might be the right way for them, but that doesn't mean it's the right way for you. No one else in the world is you. No one else in the world has your life experience. No one else has the exact same level of faith as you. No one else in the world has the same relationship with Jesus that you do. Jesus wants to deepen his friendship with you. And will do it in ways that connect with you the way he has wired you. A person with ADHD is never going to be successful at getting up every morning for three hours of focused prayer. And that's okay. Connect with Jesus in a way that works for you and let it change and grow as your relationship with him gets deeper. A mom with three or four or even one toddler nipping at her heels will need to figure out the best way to connect with Jesus during that season of life. Our prayer lives don't have to stay the same all the time. In fact, they probably shouldn't. It's good to change things up every now and then so you keep it fresh. We should do that with all of our spiritual activities every now and then. And with that said, no one else in the world, including me, has the inside track with God when it comes to prayer. You know, you don't always have to have the pastor pray when you have one present at a meal. Pastors don't mind praying. (laughs) But our prayers to bless the food aren't any more effective than your prayers to bless the food. God hears your prayers just as much as he hears my prayers. And just like you, sometimes he answers my prayers the way I want him to, and sometimes he doesn't. The bottom line here is that you build your relationship with Jesus however he has wired you to do so. Just be consistent with the values of Scripture. And what I mean by that is that the Apostle Paul says to devote yourselves to prayer, uh, to pray without ceasing, to never stop praying. But he doesn't tell us how to do that. That means you have the freedom to figure out how to apply that in your life. Pray that way. Now, there are lots of good tools that can give you a framework for praying. I grew up with the acronym ACTS, A C T S, which stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So I was taught to always start praying with words of adoration about God before I moved on to confession and then thanksgiving before I told him what I wanted him to do. You can use that acronym, but you don't have to. You can find others like it. Some people have made a framework out of what we call the Lord's Prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. Again, that is one way to pray. And frameworks can help your your focus at times, can give you new ideas. But don't get stuck thinking that that's the only way to pray. You pray in whatever way you connect with God the best. I was also uh, taught that you always start your prayers with, dear God, if that's how you want to pray, do it. But I never start a prayer that way anymore. I'm not writing him a letter. I'm not sending a prayer to someone who is far away. I'm having a conversation with my friend who is with me, in me, 24-7. Some of my best prayers start with, what are you thinking, God? (laughs) That might not work for you. I have a different relationship with him than you do. And that's okay. Make sense? Okay, back to Jesus in Gethsemane. I think we can extract a few principles to pray by. Uh, Let's look at Jesus' prayer again in verse 39. He went a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Now I think we can boil the heart of this prayer down to six words. Take this cup, not my will. Take this cup, not my will. In her book, When We Pray Like Jesus, author Elisa Morgan likens prayer to a two-sided coin. Just as a coin has two sides, Jesus' prayer has two sides. On the first side, take this cup, we find the honest prayer of a heavy heart. In his humanity, Jesus is like us in that he is not looking forward to the day to come. Just like we don't like to experience hard things, although admittedly our hard things don't rank when it compared to Jesus' hard things, Uh, fortunately, God's a both and God. Jesus faced hard things and we face hard things. It's not a competition for who faces the hardest things. But in Jesus' hard things, he was honest with his father. If there is any other way... Take this cup. If there is any other way, take this cancer. Fix this marriage. Meet this financial need. Mend this relationship. Capture this heart for heaven. Take this cup. This is what I want to happen, God. And on the other side of the coin, not my will. Surrender. A yieldedness to his plans and purposes. A relinquishment of my expectations. A faith-filled abandon. Not as being abandoned by another, but instead abandoned as in giving myself completely over to someone. Don't we see here in Jesus a perfect illustration of the tension we feel when we pray? Jesus shows us how to walk in this tension, I want this, God, but I trust you. I trust your plan. I want this, but I want you more. To truly pray like this requires humility. To pray like Jesus, we have to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers, but we trust the one who does. That in faith, we will walk whatever plan our good God has laid out for us. Those two little words are important here, in faith. Hebrews 11:6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. Uh, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 tells us uh, that we live by believing and not by seeing. The New International version translates this verse as we live by faith Not by sight. Everything about our faith is about faith. Can we all agree that God is in the business of growing our faith? Jesus said that if we had the faith of a mustard seed, we could move mountains. Since none of us has moved any mountains, literal ones that is, then by definition we don't even have the tiniest mustard seed of faith yet. So couldn't you look at the take my cup Side of the coin as the path of least faith. When I get to define how God answers, when I direct Him to an answer that I can see, it takes less faith than when I have to trust Him with abandon, without control. Now, even with that said, let's just acknowledge that God is God and sometimes He answers our less faith prayers. As we've already talked about in this series, we don't know what we don't know, and we probably don't even know what we think we know. So sometimes God answers our less faith prayers. But in my experience, even then, he meets us in our less faith prayers and grows our faith in the process. As a side note, if you're ever trying to figure out what God's will is for this or that, ask yourself this question, what requires more faith? that's probably the direction you should go. Now here's here's how this one looks like for me. One of my spiritual gifts is faith, and I've been very engaged in the process of growing my faith for a very long time. So I don't generally spend a lot of time on the take this cup or what I want part of the prayer coin. I've learned that even when I think I know what I want, it isn't. So I spend more time exploring the not my will side. The way I see it. The faster I can figure out exactly how God is going to grow my faith, the faster I can get on board and move on. And consider this: do you, ever, do you ever have someone that you'd really rather pray against than pray for? I don't really think of myself as having any enemies, but there are some people I have a hard time praying for. You know who I'm talking about. We've all had that boss that drove us up the wall. Or an ex something that trampled all over our heart, or a politician that we think is out to destroy the world, you know what I mean. I know I shouldn't really pray against that person, but I don't really want to pray for that person either. When I what I realized some years back is that mindset gave that person much to control over me. So I figured out a faith-filled way to pray the not my will side of the coin. Do you want to hear it? Or am I the only one with people like this in my life? (laughs) Now I pray, God, let your perfect work be done in blank. Let your perfect work be done in blank. Let your perfect work be done. It's a prayer of faith that takes what I want out of the equation. Because I know that if God thinks they need to be disciplined, like I think they need to be disciplined, his perfect work will include the blessing of discipline. And if he wants to really bless them, then he's God and my heart is clean before him. Praying other way runs the risk of God deciding to discipline me because of my hard heart, my lack of love. Uh, The whole idea of it releases me from being the judge and jury of their lives. It, It frees me to let it go. You might try it the next time you want to pray against someone. Now, what we should take away from Jesus at this point is that it is totally okay for you to ask God for what you want. If Jesus did it, so can we. But even for Jesus, God didn't answer his prayer. Because God's plan was that Jesus would suffer for our sin. What Luke's account tells us is that uh, though God didn't answer Jesus' prayer, he did send an angel to minister to his spirit, to strengthen and encourage him. So the first principle we find here, let's boil it down to this. It's great to pray for what you want, but trust in what you get. When you read through the Garden of Gethsemane part of all four Gospels, you'll find that Matthew's is the only one that tells us that Jesus went back and prayed the exact same prayer three times. What that tells us is that it's okay to keep going back to God in prayer. Repetition doesn't mean that you'll get the answer you want. You're not going to successfully nag God into answering a prayer your way. And God doesn't need us to pray at all. In order for him to be doing something. I've heard some people use Abraham as an example of persistence in prayer. There's this wonderful story in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Where God is out on a walkabout with a couple of angels. And he stops by Abraham's place. And later in the day as they continue on their journey. Abraham walks with them for a while. As they walk, God reveals that he is planning to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's nephew, Lot, just happens to live there. So he says, okay. (laughs) Okay, God. But what if there are 50 righteous people living there? Will you destroy the cities then? No, not if there are 50. Then Abraham says, what about 45? What about 40? What about 30? All the way down to 10? No, If there are ten righteous people, the city will be saved. As I said, I've heard people use this as an example of persistence in prayer. But my question is this. Do you really think God didn't already know that there was only one? (laughs) Lot! I mean, Lot's family was saved with him, but there isn't any evidence that they were righteous. And of course, Lot's wife became a pillar of salt on their way to safety. So there is that. This is more of an example of how God helped Abraham understand exactly how merciful he was. Only 10 people would have saved who knows how many really evil people from destruction. Which, when you think about it that way, how many righteous people will it take to save our cities? And are you a part of the problem or a part of the salvation? Jesus does tell the story of the persistent widow in the gospel of Luke. We find it in chapter 18. Let's just take a quick look. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, "'Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy.'" The judge ignored her for a while. But finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Just like the story of Abraham, I've heard people use this parable to support repetition in praying and God not moving until we ask him over and over. (laughs) It was that lie, in fact, that Jesus was addressing in this parable. This parable isn't about the judge. It's about the widow. Jesus is in no way comparing this judge to God the Father. God is not someone you have to beg and beg in order to irritate him enough to get him to move his hand. Instead, this parable encourages us to persevere in prayer. To not give up. Not for God's sake, but for our own. You see, God loves it when we ask him for help. And sometimes he does seem to wait to give us the answer we seek. But if you've raised kids, you know that you have resources that you'd gladly make available to your kids if they asked. But sometimes you wait for them to ask. Sometimes you wait because they aren't ready for your help. I mean, have you ever tried to help a five-year-old who is bound and determined to do it themselves? Sometimes you wait... Because you know they are learning a valuable lesson. And if you, sp- if you stepped in, you'd rob them of that wisdom. All that to say, yes, keep talking to God as you wait for an answer. Keep talking, recognizing that he doesn't need you to talk at all to do his thing. But he wants you to talk because like Abraham, you need to learn something about the way God works. You need to learn something about the character of this God that you serve so that you know exactly what you are trying to become like. And never, never, never believe the lie that because you didn't pray enough, God didn't move. Maybe think about it this way. Revelation chapter 5 verse 8 says this. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Now focus on that last last phrase, which are the prayers of God's people. Do you know what this means? God loves our prayers. They are a sweet aroma to him. And our prayers are eternal. This isn't just me saying this. Scholars agree. Our prayers are eternal. Our prayers are incense in the presence of God. They are a pleasing aroma to God until they are answered. And maybe even then they stick around pleasing him with a little check mark showing that they've been answered. But honestly... I'm not even sure that many of them have check marks yet. Susanna Wesley was the mother of 19 children, though only 10 of them lived to become adults. Her life was incredibly challenging. Besides losing 10 children, her husband wasn't worth his salt. Yes, that's a reference to Lot's wife. Uh, they, they had constant financial obstacles. Their house burned down twice. She homeschooled. She raised animals for food. She knew that she needed God's help, so she learned to pray. Even with five small children and teaching two more six hours a day, she promised God two hours a day in prayer. She told her kids that if they ever saw her with her apron over her head, she was praying and should not be disturbed. She prayed for many things, but mostly for her children. And her prayers led to great things. You've probably heard of two of her sons. John Wesley preached to nearly a million people. This was in the 1700s. At the age of 70, he preached to 32,000 followers without the help of a microphone. Charles Wesley wrote more than 9,000 hymns. Many of which churches still sing today. Now, you might think that now her prayers, more than 200 years later, have a check mark in heaven. But they don't. You see, they're still being answered. The ripple effect of her two sons' ministries continues even to this day. People are still being saved because someone got saved by someone who got saved by someone who got saved, however many generations down, by the ministry of John Wesley. And that person is helping to save someone today. And those hymns are still impacting us today her prayers are eternal because they are still being answered as are ours. Now, let me me make this practical. This is the level of my faith. When I pray for something, for myself or for my family or for our church or you or whatever, I believe in faith that God is already working on it anyway. I mean, I'm not delivering him news he doesn't already know. So if I forget and don't pray about that thing again, my prayer is still spreading a beautiful aroma in the presence of God. My son doesn't want to have anything to do with God right now in his life. I don't pray for him to come to Jesus every day. I've prayed. I know God loves Josh more than I ever could, and he's already working on a plan to restore Josh's heart. I just have to wait for that plan to bear fruit. And when my faith falters, I pray. Not because God needs to hear it, but because I need to say it. Let's boil this second principle down to this. Prayer is aligning my heart with what God is doing. It's getting my heart up to speed with what God is already doing. Okay, one more principle before we land the the prayer plane. Let's put the verse, put up verse 39 once again. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. You know, this is a pretty simple prayer. If we distill this down to those six words, take this cup, not my will, it's even simpler. Which, for those of you who worry about praying the right thing, especially if you have to pray out loud in a group, take a cue from Jesus. Keep it simple. Don't overthink it and think you have to have a bunch of these and those, especially if you're praying out loud. I guarantee you that everyone else is far more concerned with what they are going to pray than what you are praying. But besides that, do you know what's missing from this prayer? Think about it for a second. What's missing? No, I'm not asking the question, what's missing? That's actually the answer. The what is missing. How is God supposed to know what cup of suffering Jesus wants to be taken away? I know this is painfully obvious in this moment. But whatever it is we might want to pray about, God already knows. We aren't passing on a juicy bit of gossip. God already knows. This is how it generally goes when I get home at night. I'll say, or DeeDee will say, it goes both ways. Avery is so cute. She called the Holy Spirit the horizontal spirit today. And DeeDee will say, I know. Lexi told me. I know. God already knows. We can't tell him anything he doesn't already know. So why do we pray like we're filling him in on the news? You know, Father, I'd like to lift up Joe to you right now. He got fired today and he needs a new, a new job. He doesn't know how he's going to make ends meet. God already knows. We don't have to give him the skinny. When Joe tells me he lost his job, you know what I don't do? I don't tell God that Joe lost his job. God's already working on that. He doesn't need me to remind him that Joe needs a job. What I do pray is that God would grow Joe's faith. I pray that Joe would experience an overwhelming sense of God's presence in this dark part of his journey. I pray that God would refine Joe a little more, that he would take Joe deeper in his faith. And if I'm in a hurry, well, I might say, do your thing, God? Because I know that God already knows what I mean by that. Now, I know that there are two of you who are offended that I don't take prayer seriously enough. I take every prayer request very seriously. I spend hours in prayer over every person that I know as a dayspringer, over my my friends and family. But I also never confuse God's job with my job. And I try to talk to God just like I do all of my closest friends because that's what he is. And while we're at it, I believe God loves to laugh. He, after all, gave us the gift of laughter. So there are times I joke with him in prayer, just like I do with all of my friends. And think about it this way. Are you ever really going to embrace something that always has to be serious? I want to want to pray. I want you to want to pray. Who doesn't love fun? So bring some fun into your prayer. Now, as a total rabbit trail, Maybe you've been sitting around a growth group or a Bible study group. And you go around the room sharing your prayer request with each other. This is a good thing. By the way, we are supposed to share one another's burdens. But then we go to pray. And everyone prays exactly what was just said as if God wasn't there in the room with you when when the prayer request was shared. Couldn't God be just as honored if someone simply said, God, you've already heard it all. We trust you with each of these requests. Amen. And then you get to the snacks. <laughs> Jane always makes a fantastic dessert. <laughs> Again, the only wrong way to pray is to not pray. I'm just trying to expand your thinking a little as you look at to apply these principles to your life. Let's boil this third principle down to this. Pray to conform, not to to inform that is pray to conform your heart or the heart of whomever you are praying for pray to conform your heart not to inform God let's end with this thought as with everything else we do it is possible for us to pray without being fully present just like I can read my Bible with my mind on something else that is I'm not fully present in the moment I'm going through the motions checking the Bible reading off my list I can also give prayer the same attention. I've already talked about, uh, about this in this series about focusing uh, on quantity praying and letting quality prayer flow out of quantity. I think that was in the second message. Uh, the best praying, quality praying happens when I stop and fully enter the presence of God. That's when it's most life-changing for me. Quantity prayer is good, quality prayer is good great don't make the good be the enemy of the great but shoot for the great which makes me think of Frank Laubach as Mark Batterson writes in draw the circle in 1930 Frank began an experiment. He called the game with minutes. He was dissatisfied with his lack of intimacy with God. So he decided to do something about it. He was inspired by Brother Lawrence a 17th century monk who lived with the singular purpose of spending every moment in the presence of God, no matter what he might be doing. He lived and worked in a monastery, in the kitchen, washing dishes and preparing food. In all of his chores, through all all of his chores, he sought to find himself in the presence of God. After years of practice, he wrote, "'The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer.'" That is, the noise and clatter of the kitchen became a haven of peaceful prayer. Frank was inspired by this thought. He wondered, can we have contact with God all of the time? So he set out to find out. In his game of minutes, he tried to call God to mind at least one second of every minute. Not stopping in his work or forgetting anything else. Just inviting God to share in everything he did, everything he thought, and everything he said. He actually got hundreds of people to join him in his experiment. Uh, One way he played this game was to shoot people with silent prayer. He didn't cock his finger and then blow away the imaginary smoke. He simply prayed for people while looking at them. Some people would walk by without any reaction. Others would do a sudden about face and turn to smile at him. Sometimes even the person's entire demeanor would change. I love praying this way. I do it a lot. In fact, I often do it while I'm up here teaching or leading worship. I have this track running in my mind. And when I look out and I see you and I know what's going on in your life, or I look at the camera... And I imagine who might be watching. I pray for you. Although it can get me into trouble too. (laughs) Next time I mess up the words in worship or while I'm teaching, you'll know what happened. (laughs) Either that or I just messed up. You'll never know. (laughs) For Frank, shooting people with silent prayer changed his praying and every encounter with a person into a daily adventure. Want to try it? That's your homework for this week. Let's pray. As we go to prayer, I can imagine that, uh, because you're just like me, that um, you've, you have things on your heart that you've been praying about for a while. Some of the people in this room and watching online are in deep valleys. They're going through some, some serious stuff in their lives. All of us have been at, at that place at one point, and I'm quite certain we will be again in the future. But whatever, whatever you have on your heart, I, would just, I want to invite you in these moments to just lay it down at the throne. We're getting ready to to take communion after this next song. And I just want to invite you to lay it down because of Jesus. Knowing that there is no battle he has ever lost. He's always come through. Just take a minute to lay that down. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of the faithful giving of people who called Dayspring their home church. God's work in their lives has left them changed, has made them more like Jesus, and they have come to understand how God uses their generosity to encourage others to become like Jesus as well. So if you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God's presence would inhabit your conversations with him as you pray. Right, one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.